Some words from Proverbs chapter 3. My child, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For the length of days and years of life and abundant welfare they will give you. Do not let loyalty and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favour and good repute in the sight of God and of people. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own insight. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be a healing for your flesh and a refreshment for your body. And now let's come to God in prayer. We pray together. (coughs) Living Lord, you are the source of all life. No one is born and no one dies without your knowledge or outside of your love. Today, as we gather for worship, we give you thanks for our own continuing lives. We thank you for the diversity of our church fellowship here. For those who think and live in ways that we understand and affirm. And for those whose lives and views bewilder or perplex us. For each one of us is made in your image. Each one of us is loved by you. Each one of us is capable to be a disciple of Jesus. And each one of us is capable of disillusion, sorry, delusion and disobedience to Christ's call. As we gather today, as we rejoice in the gift of new life, as we say farewell to friends leaving for new adventures in life and faith, As we struggle to get our wills and hearts aligned with your spirit, we ask that you would meet us where we are, showing us where our attitudes need to change, gently pointing out our self-righteousness or our stubbornness, and renewing us in right-minded discipleship. Living God, you are the source of life, the source of love, the source of hope, the goal of faith. As we worship you, as we listen for your voice, as we seek to walk in Jesus' footprints, give us compassion and courage for the challenges that that brings. We offer our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. First reading is from Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, and it's on page 645 of the Church Bible. If you have to choose between a good reputation and great wealth, choose a good reputation. The rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord made them both. Sensible people will see trouble coming and avoid it. But an unthinking person will walk right into it and regret it later. Obey the Lord, be humble, and you will get riches, honor, and a long life. 
If you love your life, stay away from the traps that catch the wicked along the way. Teach children how they should live, and they will remember it all their lives. The second reading is from Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, and it's on page 177. These are all the laws that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. Obey them in the land that you are about to enter and occupy. As long as you live, you and your descendants are to honor the Lord your God and obey all his laws that I am giving you so that you may live in that land a long time. Listen to them, people of Israel, and obey them. Then all will go well with you and you will become a mighty nation and live in that rich and fertile land just as the Lord, the God of our ancestors, has promised Israel, remember this, the Lord and the Lord alone is our God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Never forget these commands that I am giving you today. Teach them to your children. Repeat them when you are at home and when you are away, when you are resting and when you are working. third reading is from the Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 10, verses 13 to 22. And uh, this is on, I try and find the place, this is on page 60 of the Bible. Some people brought children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples scolded the people. When Jesus noticed this, he was angry and said to his disciples, Let the children come to me, and do not stop them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I assure you that whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Then he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on each of them, and blessed them. As Jesus was starting on his way again, a man ran up and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to receive eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not accuse anyone falsely. Do not cheat. Respect your father and your mother. Teacher, the man said, ever since I was young I have obeyed all these commandments. Jesus looked straight at him with love and said, You need only one thing. Go and sell all you have and give the money to the poor and you will have riches in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the man heard this, gloom spread over his face, and he went away sad because he was very rich. Praise be to God. The story of Jesus blessing the children is a much-loved and very familiar one, and it contains very rich echoes of the culture in which Jesus lived, whereby parents would take their children or at least their sons, to a well-respected rabbi for him to bless them. And maybe in due course, that rabbi would become their teacher. Little boys would go to the synagogue school, where they would learn to read and to understand Hebrew and the Torah, and learn about their faith, whilst little girls would stay at home and learn from their mothers. That's a story for another day. 
But over the years, they would have become familiar with the words that we heard read, both from the book of Proverbs and the book of Deuteronomy. Parents would want to ensure that their children were trained up in the right way, the way they ought to go, in the hope that when they were adults, they would have absorbed the values and norms of the society of which they were part. So I wonder what was going through the heads of those parents who brought their children to Jesus that day for a blessing. And it's interesting that the gospel uses the neutral word children. It doesn't say they brought their sons. It says they brought their children to Jesus. What did they think their children might learn from this rather unusual rabbi? Did they think that Jesus was the best new thing and that was the person they wanted their children to to learn from? I wonder how those parents were seen. Were they seen as a bit radical or a bit liberal, because they went off to this northern teacher who seemed to come into conflict with the authorities quite often. Why didn't they go for somebody nice and orthodox, like Rabbi Gamaliel, who is also mentioned in Scripture? You see, this is not a sweet little story for Sunday school children, just to say, Jesus loves you, though that is true. And neither is it an attack on an adult-centric view of church that sees children's work as an add-on and the first part of the service as something to be sat through so we can get to the real thing. Actually, what it is, is a story that cuts right to the heart of what we are about. If we bring our children into the orbit of Jesus' influence, why do we do it? Why did David and Elaine bring Maximus to church today and make those promises? Why did we promise to support them? In each of the three synoptic gospels, the story of the blessing of the children is immediately followed by the story of the man who came to Jesus. And each gospel describes him slightly differently. He's described as young, as wealthy, and even as a religious leader. And he came to Jesus with a question. And I find myself wondering, had he been in the crowd that watched as Jesus blessed the children, as Jesus chastised the disciples for trying to send the children away? I wonder what it was that prompted that man who had grown up in the heart of Orthodox Judaism and who actually may have only been in his late teens or early 20s, to come rushing up to Jesus and say, what do I have to do to get eternal life? I wonder if he remembered, as a small boy, being taken by his parents to meet an old man, probably in a black robe and with a grey hair and a grey expression, who prayed over him and then became his teacher. How had he been trained up in the way he should go? And into what kind of faith life had he been nurtured? It seems to me that something he heard that day prompted him to act. And the reply Jesus gives actually is surprising. You see, Jesus had not been on a 20th or 21st century evangelism counsellor's course because he doesn't give a nice formula. He doesn't talk about four spiritual laws. He doesn't talk about the need to turn away from sin. And he certainly doesn't give the man a prayer to pray. He asks him a question. 
Why do you call me good? Only God is good. Now, whether this is Jesus at his most mischievous, or whether this is a slick bit of wordplay because the man is glimpsing something of God in Jesus, I don't know. But perhaps what comes next is surprising. Jesus simply reminds the man of what he's known since he was a little boy. The things he had learned at the feet of a rabbi, the familiar laws that were recited at the synagogue, and even painted on the doorposts of his house. I know all that, the young man says. I've kept the rules all my life. He was a very earnest young man and a legalistically correct young Jew, an upright member of society who knew all the correct answers. I have a suspicion that had there been prizes for attendance at the synagogue school, he'd have won them. Had there been a sticker chart for remembering memory verses, he would have had the most stickers. And had there been a youth group in his synagogue, he would have been the star member of that youth group, the one everybody's held up as a shining example. By the letter of the law, he had it all right. And you know, I suspect he wasn't so different from some of the many young Christian students who will soon be arriving in Glasgow to begin studying. He got lots and lots of knowledge. He knew all about the religious rituals and his practices were spot on. But for all that he had done everything by the book, something was missing. He'd not quite grasped there was a world of difference between knowing the letter of the law and abiding by it and the spirit of the law and living it out. As Jesus looked at this earnest young man, so sure of his righteousness as a rule-following Jew, as he listened to those responses, Jesus felt love for him. He looked on him and he loved him. This young man so wanted to get it right, and he knew for all that he knew in his head, something was missing. And I imagine Jesus looking deep into the eyes of that young man and threw that into his heart and asking one question. Go and sell all you have and give the money to the poor. The young man was so sad he turned away and left. You see, all his learning and all his orthodoxy hadn't prepared him for that. He was a good man. Let's not get that wrong. He was a great man, a good person. And yet what Jesus asked of him was too much. Train up a child in the way they should go, says the writer of the Proverbs. And I'm sure this young man's parents and the rabbi at the local synagogue and the community of which he was part had all done their best to do that, to give him a good understanding of his faith, to show him how he should live. But somehow... What Jesus asked him was a step too much. Train up a child. Very often that proverb is quoted out of context. Now, the book of Proverbs is a very complicated one, but I deliberately chose this morning for us to hear that with some of the other proverbs that come round it. Reputation is more important than wealth. God made rich people and poor people. Sensible people spot trouble and avoid it. 
If you obey God and are humble, you'll be rewarded with riches, respect, and a long life. I wonder which of those the young man had heard as he grew up. Had he grown up thinking that he was humble and pious, and that therefore his prosperity and honour were his due reward? Had he seen riches and poverty as a given that didn't need to be questioned? Had anyone ever pointed out to him that bit at the beginning that said, reputation is more important than wealth? However he had been trained, whatever he had heard, nothing had prepared him for what Jesus had to say. This gospel story shows a young adult who knew an awful lot about faithful living, but who couldn't quite get there. With the assurance of youth, which is completely understandable, he had confused head knowledge with life transformation. Now, I'm quite sure he had kept the letter of the law. I'm quite sure he had never murdered, he had never committed adultery, and perhaps apart from the old snaffling of a biscuit, he'd never stolen anything. But he had fallen into the idolatry of possessions without even noticing it. So one of the questions we need to think about is what emphases do we make when we train up our children? How do we prepare children and young people to be disciples of Jesus, open to discovering new insights into what it means to be his followers, rather than being very knowledgeable, but legalistic, and even some kind of Christian robots? The passage from Deuteronomy reminds us that nurturing children is a whole life commitment. And it hints that this involves not just the parents, though the parents are very important, but the wider family and the friends. That's why David and Elaine have asked for godparents for Maximus. And also the faith community of which they are part. And our actions are every bit as important as our words. Children are great mimics, and I'm sure Maximus will be no exception to that. They see adults do something and they copy it. Whether that's something that we think is good, such as sitting quietly in church, or something we see as bad, such as repeating swear words they've heard adults use. I'm sure we've all heard little tots go down the street saying, hmm, hmm, and it's kind of funny, but it's kind of embarrassing. And the parents go, nothing to do with me. Well, I wonder... Every one of us, by our attitudes, by our words, by our actions, is teaching children and young people something about life and faith that will permanently shape them. So how might we go about nurturing our children? How might Elaine and David, supported by Andrew and Louise, their wider family, and this fellowship, nurture Maximus, so that he will be equipped for adulthood as a disciple of Jesus in a very complicated and confusing world. A few thoughts, which I might need to abbreviate slightly because time is running away from me. Firstly, how do we come to the Bible? Do we come to it as a rule book or as an account of people seeking to live life in relationship with God, from whose stories we can find eternal, ethical and spiritual principles? The truth is, I don't think, possible exception of Miss Allen, there's anybody here who knows the whole Bible off by heart. I don't think so. 
But I also know that every single one of us is quite capable of finding a verse or a text that shows us how somebody else might be a sinner. It's a complicated book, the Bible. It's too big to hold in our minds, all of it. And actually, we can play unhelpful games where we say, well, here it says this, and there it says that. And this is God's will, and and that we're not quite sure about, or whatever it is. One thing that is quite clear to me that runs all the way through Scripture is it's God's will that none be lost. And one day, God will make all things new. So here's a thought. When we are teaching and training our children, or those who are new to faith, what kind of understanding of scripture do we give them? Do we make it into a living word, alive and active, which by God's spirit can lead us to new understanding? Or as a kind of thing to hammer people over the head with? The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church at Corinth, said, The letter kills The Spirit gives life. The truth is, if our nurturing consists solely of unthinking adherence to a set of rules, then we should not be surprised if our children, like the young man in the story, walk away. But there is a tension between legalism and liberty. I'm not saying that anything goes. Actually, we have to find that right path between the extreme of legalism on one side and licentiousness on the other. A balance between rule-bound and being off the rails. Playing with alliteration this morning. There is something here about what is appropriate for ages and stages in life. Parents of little babies find themselves in the role of protector trying to keep their little ones safe. Those who are parents, I'm sure, remember that when you set up home, you made it a lovely place with things that you liked around you and nice ornaments and nice pictures and nice things. And then a baby came along and they had to be put away and you put little covers over the sockets and a fire guard in place. And that's absolutely right because a little one needs to be kept safe. But as children grow, they have to begin to understand those things and live with them. And we take those guards away, and they grow in independence and confidence with the potential for liberty, the freedom to be and to do. Many of you know I was at a theology conference a couple of weeks ago, and somebody used a metaphor of a contoured faith. Faith as being a little bit like a mountain that recognises there are certain non-negotiable truths about the nature of God, things that you absolutely cannot and should not challenge. But there are many, many other things where it's negotiable, where we look at the Bible and find different things at different times, where there are different understandings that reflect different cultures and generations. And the really tricky bit is working out which are the non-negotiable truths and which are the bits that you can debate. Again, the Apostle Paul is very helpful here. He says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. If that's the highest contour, if somebody being able to say Jesus is Lord is what matters, then maybe... 
maybe we're challenged to live more humbly with those who differ from us on other matters of faith and practice. And is that something we should be modelling and teaching our children and young people? As Baptists who stress the autonomy of the local congregation to interpret Christ's laws, guided by God's Holy Spirit, I believe it is. Knowing where boundaries are and how far is too far is really important for children. But if we want them to grow into proper adults, mature and truly free, we have to be careful that those boundaries don't become barriers, obstacles that prevent them growing up in their faith and their values. We have to be very careful that our community of faith is not a holy huddle, so separate from the everyday life of our children and young people that it doesn't make any connection, that it doesn't make sense. Today, each of us has made promises before God concerning the upbringing of Maximus. And some of us will have the great privilege of watching him grow up, delighting in his first steps, his first words, watching him take his place in Sunday school, and we hope one day coming to the waters of baptism in profession of faith for himself. And today we are full of optimism about that because Maximus is just a gorgeous baby. But as he grows up, we all know he will change. He will be a cute and curious toddler. He will be an awkward adolescent, a stroppy teenager, and one day a young man making his own decisions about Jesus. And our hope that he comes to faith is not wishy-washy, wishful thinking. It has within it a sense of expectation that it will happen and a commitment to work together towards it. But with that hope and with that faith must come our love. That's quite a clear biblical principle. These hold together. We must be quite clear that however life turns out for Max... Whatever choices he makes, whether we like them or whether we don't, we will always love him and accept him, just as God loves and accepts him. The truth is there will always be differences and disagreements among Christians about what is central and what we can have different views on. But we must take that mandate from Jesus seriously to enable children to discover him. If he and other children are to grow as followers of Jesus, able to wrestle with the complexities of life, to listen to one another, to trust in God's mercy, then I think that's stuff we should be about. That's the stuff that should have us on the right track. Learning to work together, to hear each other, and trust that God's mercy, love, and grace are beyond our understanding. That's an awful lot of words, and I have talked for far too long. I'm really sorry. When you came, you should have found a poem on your chair. I'm not going to read it, but it seems to me to have some very good principles in helping to nurture children for life. And I'm going to invite you to take that home, to read it, to pray it, and to do your best to live it. Because I think within there, even though not explicitly stated... There is much that can help us to train up our children in the way of Christ. Amen.
Uh, now it's time for us to bring our prayers for others. There's several subjects that we could pray about this morning. We could pray about 9-11 and the effects of that tragedy. We could pray for Africa and our friends who are returning there, or even Europe, a time of economic and political turmoil. However, this morning I, I think we should pick up the main theme of the service and pray for the children of the world. Let's pray. As we pray this morning, I want you to think of a child you know. It might be a son or a daughter or a niece or a nephew or a grandchild, possibly one of our Sunday school children or possibly young Maximus. Put them in the centre of your thoughts as we pray now for the children of the world. We pray for the orphans of 9-11, that they might not grow up in an atmosphere of hatred, but know the love of God. For the children of Haiti, many still without homes or shelter. For the starving children of Somalia and Kenya, that the world may wake up to the need there and do something to meet it. For the children of Japan, some of whose homes were totally wrecked and destroyed, orphans who lost their parents in the tsunami, may the world again remember. the injured, maimed and dying children of Libya, that they might not be overlooked in the chaos that seems to reign there. For the abused and starving children of the favelas and the townships in Africa and South America and elsewhere, that we may see the continuing needs there. For children growing up in poverty and lack of opportunity here in our own city and elsewhere in the UK. Jesus said, inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it to me. Now help us not merely to remember and pray this morning, Lord, but to see every child in the world in the place of the one we've been imagining in our minds and act accordingly. In your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat>